All right, so this week we are looking at chapter 10, so I think everybody has it now. Uh, we're looking at page 110 in your notes, if you have it. And this is uh, progressive sanctification. So this is really building on chapter 8. We covered in chapter 8 the battle with sin, temptation. So a lot of that material, uh, this is kind of building on that, uh, that stuff that was introduced then. Uh, so looking... Um, we're going to look at the need for sanctification in our lives, why it's important, how we all need it. Uh, we want to understand what it is uh, when we think about sanctification. Uh, what's the goal? What are we actually trying to accomplish? Or what's God? What is God's purpose in sanctification in us? And what the actual process itself of sanctification? So that's kind of what we'll be looking at. So starting at the uh, top of page 110, the, the word sanctification sounds very theological and is therefore somewhat intimidating. Uh, in reality, the concept is very simple. So sanctification means to be set apart in both Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek. The same root word that is transla- translated as sanctif- to sanctify is also translated as holy. So to sanctify something is simply to make it holy, to set it apart. Uh, so the separation being set apart, or that is being set apart, described by sanctification as both a negative and positive aspect to it. So through sanctification, you are separated from sin, the negative, and then you also separated unto God, the positive aspect of there. So we'll skip down through that box there. And the Old Testament term for sanctification, uh, the Old, Old Testament Hebrew word for sanctification is uh, kadesh, so it's often used to describe the process by which the tabernacle, tabernacle, temple, their tools, and priests were ceremonially, ceremonially purified for service to God. They were consecrated to Him, uh, which is the, the translation of Kadesh. So, what items were set apart unto God in the following passages? passages? Genesis two three. We see that reading Genesis two three. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So in Genesis 2-3, we see that God had set apart the Sabbath. Uh, set apart the Sabbath. Uh, Exodus 13-2 says, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. So in Exodus 13, we're looking at the uh, firstborn sons being set apart. Exodus 28.3 Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as high priest. So there it's talking about Aaron, the high priest. And Aaron is in his position as the high priest over Israel. Exodus 29.44 So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. So there we're talking about the tent, uh, the tent of meeting, the altar place, and also the uh, Aaronic priesthood, Aaron and his sons also. And then Leviticus 11, 44 through 45. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. 
So we see there the Israelites themselves were to be set apart or consecrated to God. So the Old Testament teaches two primary lessons regarding sanctification. So God demands holiness. And we saw that in Leviticus 11.44 and some of those other verses listed there. It says God, you know, he's God speaking to the Israelites there. It says you are to be holy because I am holy. So he demands holiness from his people uh, in the Old Testament. And God also, number two, provides holiness. And that's in Exodus 31.13. Uh, and that's the verse, the next verse there listed in the box. The Lord who makes you holy. Uh, or describing there that, that name for God, uh, one of the names of the Lord. So it says, what a blessed truth, uh, top of 111, that, ev- that the very holiness which God demands, he also provides through Jesus Christ. So we're now turning to the New Testament. The New Testament term for sanctification the New Testament Greek term for sanctification is very similar to its Hebrew counterpart. Uh, the Greek word for sanctification is hagiazo, a derivative of the word hagias, which means holy. Once again, to be sanctified means to be or become holy. So now we really want to look at this, the need for sanctification here in this section. Uh, chapter 9 describes your battle with the flesh. So if you remember uh, that, that chapter there. Your flesh is the natural bent towards selfishness and sin uh, with which you were born. When you trusted Christ as Savior, you gained a new nature, that is the Spirit, capital S, uh, but your old nature, the flesh, remains with you. Your old nature is very much alive, but the process of sanctification is designed to gradually reduce its power. So that's the important part there, gradually, the gradual reduction of sin's power over you. Uh, how is your heart described in Jeremiah 17.9? Uh, the NIV describes your heart as deceitful. Uh, the, the NET Bible, the NET Bible, has describes it as incurably bad. So that's a, a good way of thinking about it, incurably bad. Um, so it says the reality and pervasiveness of your sin is generally referred to as total depravity. We've talked about that a little bit here in the class, uh, some previous classes. It means that every part of your sin, of your person, has been affected by sin. So, how does Jeremiah seventeen nine stack up against the popular concept that people are basically good? So, this, uh, the idea when Jeremiah, in that Jeremiah passage, when it calls the human heart is deceitful, uh, it goes completely against. So, it's almost the opposite idea there, of that when people think of, uh, you know, people as basically good. What the Bible says is it describes the people as the opposite of that, or very much not. Uh, we are not good. So, are Christians basically good? So that's uh, a question that comes up from time to time. Rom- Romans three ten through eighteen describes the sinful condition of all people, the condition that is retained in your own heart. Uh, so, this is a good verse to think about as we we think about. Uh, this issue in, in our lives and the people we know, how we interact with people. Uh, so Romans three ten through eighteen it says, "There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. 
The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, how do how does Romans three uh, describe Christian or people? Uh, it describes us as people who are perpetually or habitually moving away from God, if left to our own. So, when we're left to our own devices, we are uh, we are always moving away from God. We are doing our own thing. We have no righteousness on our own. So the Apostle Paul lamented his experience with the flesh in Romans 7, 18-25. Notice that he acknowledged that his heart was evil rather than good. He admitted his tendency to do evil rather than good and concluded that he was a wretched man. So surely you can relate to the experience of Paul. So I'm pro- we probably have all had those thoughts uh, at those times of failure in our Christian life where we're you know, really... Uh, we realize our sinful nature, uh, sinfulness. So uh, it says, Christian author Jim Berg states the following truths from Scripture to clearly demonstrate your need for sanctification. So he says, your flesh will deceive you. Uh, we won't go through these particular verses. Uh, we'll just kind of read what it says here. The flesh, your flesh will deceive you. Uh, your flesh will defile you. And your flesh will destroy you. So, explain the principle of sowing and reaping from Galatians 6, 7, and 8 in your own words. So, Galatians, I'll read that for you. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So, really... And if we're thinking about what we're ta- what Paul is talking about there, uh, he's really trying to emphasize that um, what you feed, what uh, what you sow, or what he, he's saying sow there, but what that part of you that you feed is really the part that you're actually going to be reaping the uh, consequences from. So are you feeding that part of you, that the flesh part or the uh, the spirit part of your of your person? trying to get you to think about that. So the stakes are high. The existence and wickedness of your flesh makes your, makes your need for sanctification great. So any questions on that stuff so far? Any comments or uh, anything there? Up to right there. So we're on page 112 now. Uh, looking at definitive or past sanctification. <coughs> So it's essential that you understand the difference between past sanctification, that is definitive sanctification, and present sanctification, or progressive sanctification. Uh, Scripture teaches that there is, in a sense, in which you are already sanctified. So find the English equivalents for the following Greek words. So Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 1-2, he calls the Corinthians to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. So sanctified in the past tense, they're talking about they're already sanctified uh, in God's eyes. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
No, First Peter two nine. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. So these speeches, these passages teach that in God's sight you are already holy because you have been definitively or once and for all set apart for the, from the dominion of sin when you were first saved, that is, when you were regenerated. So this is the aspect of sanctification uh, the Bible describes in Romans 6-2 when it speaks of believers as those who have died to sin. Though you, are still, though you still sin, uh, you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer under the bondage of sin uh, because of what because of your regeneration. So the balance between, now looking at progressive or ongoing present sanctification, the balance between definitive and progressive sanctification is communicated in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 2.9, you were described as holy, yet scripture repeats a command two times in 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. What is it? So let me read that for you. Uh, 1 Peter 1... Peter 1, 15 through 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So he repeats there twice, be holy. Uh, to his readers, be holy. He commands them. In what areas of your lifestyle are you to be holy? So it says in verse 15, be holy in all you do. So in all areas of our life, we should exhibit holiness. <clears throat> So not just in our Christian spheres, not in our church uh, lives, uh, but in all aspects of our lives. One area of your life which Scripture commands to be set apart unto God is sexual purity. So 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 4, 8 deal with purity and mentions some form of the word holy or sanctification no less than six times. So uh, of real emphasis there in that passage is holiness. So what do these following verses from 1 Thessalonians teach about sanctification? So 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. And then, uh, so there, 4.3, it's that we would avoid sexual immorality. And then in 4.7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So we're called to live holy lives. So that's really what we're what we're after with sanctification. Progressive sanctification has everything to do with how you live on a daily basis. The areas of your life that are, are not holy need to become holy. So you, you must become increasingly set apart from sin and to God in a nutshell. Scripture repeatedly commands you to change your character, thinking, and behavior. Uh, the words that Scripture uses to describe that change may differ. So depending on where you're at in the New Testament, you can use those words grow, be transformed, walk. Uh, sometimes 
We'll see that with Paul. Put off, put on, that kind of language. But the concept is the same. In your nature, you are sinful and you must change to be holy. So there needs to be some kind of transformation in all in the different areas of our life so that we reflect God's holiness. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on, <clears throat> what we're doing here. So it's not just an outward uh, you know, care, action. It's not just a matter of you know, being... Um, acting a certain way because I think if you're most of us recognize that once you're in church for a certain period of time you learn how to act you learn how to speak you, you pick up the language uh, you know the right answers to questions and so you know it's not just a matter of saying the right things or acting the right way when you're in front of people um, but it, it's a it's a transformation it's, it's a good way of thinking a transformation of your heart that manifests itself in outward behavior so the goal of sanctification, there in the middle of the page. Scripture does not command change for change's sake. There is an objective biblical goal for sanctification. God's purpose for you is that you become increasingly like Jesus Christ. So that's the important part. We're not just becoming holy. We're not just being commanded to be holy so that we're good people. We're not just be, um, to be moral people. You know, we sometimes people will look at outsiders will look at the Bible and think, well, yeah, it's good you have this morality, and it's good that you you have some kind of moral. But that's really not what we're looking. That's not the goal there. So we're not just looking to be moral people. Uh, we are increasingly trying to be more like Jesus Christ in every in all aspects of our life. So Philippians two five. Let me read that for you. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So in your mindsets, have the same minds, or in your mindsets, or excuse me, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So as we relate to one another, we are to have the same mind as Christ. Philip, Romans 8.29 For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So God predestined us to be like his son. And then he describes uh, him as the firstborn among brothers and sisters. So we are actually brothers and sisters with Christ uh, as we reflect him. Another good verse that's not listed here, but you might want to write, write down, Ephesians 1, 4-5. Ephesians 1, 4-5 is a good one too. Uh, that highlights and it's good to know. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So he chose us to be holy and blameless. So Romans 8.28, it says, it is, uh, is often taking it out of context, God does indeed work out all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But what is that purpose? So that's the question. What is that purpose? Verse 29 reveals that it is conformity to Christ's likeness. Uh, Romans 8.28 then teaches that God uses even bad things to change you into the image of Christ. And we'll flesh that out a little bit later in the lesson. The bad things that happen in our life, God is even using those to conform us to the image of Christ. 
and so I was actually thinking about that. On my tr- I was just out in Iowa for Thanksgiving. And I remember having a conversation with my wife about this uh, a few weeks ago. As we think about, and this was not so much about sanctification, but it was about uh, God's, kind of God's sovereignty over all things. And it was the question, you know, I remember talking about with my wife about, so we want to understand God's sovereignty over all aspects of life. But then sometimes we struggle when it's like the little things. So it's easy to see God's sovereignty over the big issues like death, birth, you know, these big issues of life. But when uh, something minor happens, uh, somebody, you know, like what happened, what triggered this thought the memory to me is that we were in Iowa and someone shot our car with a BB gun as it was parked in front of my my in-law's house. And I remember thinking, it came into my head, so uh, you struggle with God's sovereignty and why this kind of stuff happens. Why does why does this car, why does my car have to get shot? I'm just out here and now i got to deal with all this trouble. But if, if Romans 8.28 is talking about, and we understand the, the verse 29 that follows... <clears throat> If, if nothing else, God is using that to conform us to Christ's likeness because what is my reaction? My first reaction, is it, is it being Christ-like or is it being un-Christ-like? You know, for me, I, you know, where I, yeah, I've said before, what, you know, the struggles. You, you struggle with anger and am I really thinking, you know, but then you, if, if you put things into perspective and you start thinking the little things, the bad things, the good things are all there God is using these things to conform us. Uh, and, you know, in my mind, all I'm thinking about is the money now, because now I'm thinking, oh, i got to put out money to get this car, get this little thing fixed. But, uh, you know, God is using these things to conform us into the image of Christ, or at least bring to us an aspect of our life that is not reflecting Christ. You know, maybe he, that's the reason there, is he's bringing these things up. So the leaving the little annoying things that are annoying to us. Like getting our car shot with a BB gun. So 2 Timothy 2.21 explains that you are becoming more like Christ should lead to action. According to this verse, what does sanctification prepare you for? So 2 Timothy 2.21 says, Those who cleanse themselves from the latter, that is from sin, from immorality, will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. So, becoming more like Christ means that we become suitable instruments, suitable vessels that then God can use to accomplish his will. And we, we see that from the Old Testament language. Remember that language is used for temple, in the temple language. So the instruments that the priests were using were sanctified, that it was they were made suitable for use in the, in the service of the temple. That same idea carries over to the New Testament with God's people. We were made usable, suitable vessels for God's use. So the process now, the process of sanctification. For a lot of us, this is the big question mark. This is where kind of the rubber meets the road. The process of sanctification. What is God, how does it happen? What does God use uh, to do to, to accomplish the sanctification? Number one, it says at the bottom of 113, sanctification is a work of God. So it must never be thought that sanctification is something that you seek to accomplish by sheer human effort alone. Indeed, almost the entire book of Galatians teaches that just as your salvation was begun by faith, so this faith continues to grow 
as we make progress in sanctification. So how do the following passages address your inability to make yourself holy on your own? And we talked about this before. You know, it's not just a matter of, I need to try harder. You know, I just need to, I'm struggling with this, and I just need to try harder and get it right. You know, that's uh, really not uh, what's going on here. So we're just trying harder isn't going to accomplish it. Romans 7.18 then. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. So what Paul is saying there is our nature is by default sinful. There's nothing good dwelling within us apart from Christ, apart from God, what God has been doing in us. There's nothing good within us. So just trusting in ourselves and our ability to just work harder does fail falls on its face almost immediately because we don't have uh, our nature is sinful. Galatians five seventeen for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. So there's this conflict, this inner conflict that is with all of us that we all struggle with. Paul highlights this in a couple places in his writings. The conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Exodus 31, 13, the second part of the verse. You may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. So it's the Lord is the one who makes us holy. So it's not us. We don't actually, we're not the ones making ourselves holy. It's He's explicitly saying there in Exodus that it's God who makes us holy. So according to Romans 15, 16, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and 1 Peter 1, 2, who is it that accomplishes your sanctification? Who works to change you into the image of Christ? Let me just read one of those. We don't have time to read more. So, Romans 15, 16. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, that is Paul speaking, he gave me the, the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's work in us in sanctification. So that's what that little quote there to the right. The Holy Spirit of God uses the Holy Word of God to make you more like the Holy Son of God. So what a tremendous encouragement to know that God is actively working in you even today. What promises does he give you in Philippians 1.6? Uh, so it says that he began, he that began a good work in us will carry it out to completion. So we know that God who started this work in us will finish this work. So it's, it's, it's something that we can place our confidence in. As we see, as we're confronted with our shortcomings, as we're confronted with our places that we fail, we know that God is still working in us to carry this, this through. First Thessalonians five twenty-three to twenty-four offers a prayer for sanctification, followed by a promise. What is that promise? That the one who calls us is faithful. He is faithful to us, and he will do it. So that's verse twenty-four. That he will do it that he's going to be the one to accomplish this this work in us. Which is as it should be, so that he receives the glory for it. 
So sanctification is comparable to the work of a sculptor. Some of you have heard this comparison. The sculptor carefully, though firmly, chisels away what is harsh and unbecoming in order to produce a work of art. The Holy Spirit of God is progressively chiseling away your carnality and selfishness in order to make you like Christ. While having the rough edges edges chiseled away is often painful, it is always rewarding. So this next section, these five verses, are are really good. Uh, Something you make a note there, come back to, think about. These are good verses to be thinking about as we think about how does God, how do we uh, accomplish this? uh, What what are the means that God works, uh, provides for us to be sanctified? So God uses a variety of tools to accomplish his work of sanctification. According to the following verses, what are they? So John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So a lot of you know that verse. So God's word is one of those ways, one of those tools that God uses. Ephesians 5, 26. So the air says, To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So the, the cleansing effect of God's word Highlighted again in Ephesians. Mark 14, 38. Jesus tells uh, tells his followers, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So there we see prayer is one of those important things that we need to, uh, to be using as we uh, uh, progress in sanctification. 1 Peter 1, 7. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, so as your faith is worth more than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, that is gold, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So trials, those those fiery trials, those hard times that we go through are the tools that God uses, are another one of the tools, the trials. So would you put genuineness of faith there? Uh, trials. Oh. So God uses trials and hardships in our life. Sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, Proverbs twenty-seven, seventeen. Uh, let's see. Here. I don't want to down. As iron sharpens iron, so another person sharpens another. So other believers. Other believers are one of the main ways that God uses to sharpen. So what is that speaking to? That's speaking to community. Life, the Christian life lived out in community as we live out our our Christian lives with each other here in the local church. God has used that as one of the main ways God is using to uh, bring us to sanctification, to make us more like Christ. So the how then uh, of what, uh, so we're still on that same page, but just the how of when we think about how do, how do we become more like Christ, the spiritual disciplines of, of this, uh, reading, studying scripture, meditating on scripture, memorizing scripture, prayer, those difficult circumstances, and then personal relationships. Those three things are important to, to be thinking about. So it's not a matter of just trying harder. So I highlight those things because we don't want to just think, you know, I just need to try harder I'm struggling with this area of sin, whatever it is, anger, 
looking at things you shouldn't look at, um, you know, harboring resentment towards other believers, these areas. Uh, it's not a matter of just trying harder. We need to use these tools that God has provided in order to, uh, to have some measure of success. Sanctification requires, number two, sanctification requires your active participation. Although it is God who makes you holy, don't imagine that you are passive. You must submit and obey the Lord as he works to sanctify you. Which of God's tools previously mentioned are you able and responsible uh, to apply to yourself? So I, it seems like to me that they would be all of them. But I'm, I'm, you can actually apply all of those things. God's word, prayer, I, you know, the trials, all of those things you can you can appropriate. Romans, uh, top of page 115. Romans 6.19 addresses your cooperation with God in the, pro- in the process of sanctification. What are you commanded to do? He says in uh, the third, the, the last part of that verse that we were to offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. Offer ourselves as slaves to righteousness. So how is the balance between God's work and your participation, excuse me, participation communicated in Philippians 2, 12 through 13? In verses, uh, verse 2 through t- 2, 12, we are told to work out our own, our salvation with fear and trembling. So working out your salvation is a command to demonstrate that you are saved, not to save yourself. So some of you have heard that verse. Uh, maybe there's some confusion on what that means. Um, really, it's a, it's an issue of working out your salvation means that you're actually working, living out that now that you're saved, live out that life, that that life that reflects uh, your regenerate state. Get on with living the Christian life. Uh, Two thirteen. God produces the desires in us that he will use for his purposes. So it's not a matter of what Philippians 2.13 tells us. God is actually producing in us the will to actually do these things. So we see what seems like a conflict in the ideas, right? So in verse 12 it says that we're told to work out our own salvation, live out that Christian life. 2.13 says that God is actually doing it. So how can these two verses be both be true? God works in you in verse 13 so that you can work out your own salvation in verse 12 as a demonstration of your salvation. So that's an important way of thinking about it. Sanctification works from the inside out, number three. While it is essential that you develop standards of Christian conduct, such as activities you will or will not participate in, or places you will or will not go, you must never equate outward standards with holiness. If we think about that, what do we... Can you think about, uh, in the New Testament, who are the people that uh, really emphasize outward behavior? Well, Pharisees. The Pharisees. Yeah, so the Pharisees, Jesus is always running into conflict with the Pharisees and the Pharisees were infamous because these were the ones that outwardly looked the most holy. I mean, if you if you're just judging on outward appearances, these are the guys. These are the guys that you're like, man, these guys 
if we're going off outward appearances, look like they got it all together. So it's entirely possible to follow a strict list of to-dos and do's and don'ts and yet not be holy. Why? Because God wants a change of heart, not merely a change of habit. So the Greek word translated as changed in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is metamorpho, metamorpho, the root of our English word metamorphosis. It describes a change in nature, not merely appearance. Sanctification is not merely looking or acting holy, it is becoming holy. So it is, it's really important that it's becoming holy. Sanctification works from the inside out, not the outside in. God repeatedly states in Scripture that he desires a godly heart, not merely right conduct. So these are some good verses I'll read through, and you'll see this over and over, this idea that he doesn't, it's not uh, that what God wants is, is a right heart and not just uh, right actions absence of a, a right heart. So, Isaiah 1, 11. God speaking to the Israelites says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. So that's an important thing. That's a... It's almost a slap in the face as you read it. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Isaiah 29, 13. These people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. These are He's saying this to the Israelites. These are the people who are following him. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your heart. Psalm 51. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. This is now the psalmist speaking to the Lord. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not, that you, God, will not despise. So they're displaying what God actually desires. Ephesians 3. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. 1 Peter 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. So that's one of those verses that's been abused. But what really is being pushed there is what's it's important what's inside a right heart Matthew 15 18 but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them Proverbs 4.23 above all else guard your heart for everything you do flows from it you must not misunderstand this portion of the lesson are standards of Christian conduct important yes and they should be high Yet they, they must be the result of a sanctified heart, not a substitute for it. 
God's desire for your life is not merely a change of habit. It is much, much more. He desires a change of heart, which will turn, in turn bring about a change of habit. So how does that affect your understanding of your own sanctification? So it's not our, our understanding of our own sanctification has to be, in, in light of those verses, it's not just about what we do. We need to be thinking about how is my heart? You know, as I relate to these, it's not just about showing up to church every Sunday so that everyone can see that I'm here. Why are you doing it? Why do you do the things you do? Why do you do the ministry? Why, are you, why do you get involved with the ministries you do? It's not just about doing the right things. Is it important to have high moral standards? Yes. But can they make you holy? No. So on the other hand, so that's it's a it's really a kind of a conflict. On the other hand, someone who is genuine holy will have high moral standard standards. Holiness of heart results in holiness of habit. How should realizing that outward change is a reflection and result of heart change affect your relationship with others, especially new Christians? This is a this is a good one to think about. How does the fact that there's a direct relationship between the heart and the outward action affect our as we relate to other believers, especially new ones. Because sometimes, you know, I, I think we probably all know people who are early on Christians or we can think back to some people in our lives when they were early became Christians. And there's sometimes that behavior that you're just like, man, right? or something, you know, maybe it was you. But what that should help you to understand is that, on one hand, it should give you patience, right? As you relate to that person who's new in the faith, you should have patience with them because you realize it's not just about them being, uh, it's not like your child, right? You're just, your child, you tell, if you have a child, you just say, you just need to do this because, you know, you may not understand all the issues now, but you're, you're just looking for them to do behavior, with, with a believer, it's not so much just behavior that you're looking for. So you want, we want to show patience to those who are slow to grow, I think. But also I think it should keep us ourselves humble uh, as we relate because we didn't get to the where, where we were uh, by our own self. So we didn't, we didn't, weren't the ones who changed our heart. Uh, you know, God is the one who did it, so we should keep us humble as we relate to others. Anyone else have any ideas on that? So I want to, if you guys think about that. So how does that reflect, or how should that affect our relationship with others? So number four, sanctification is a process. So 2 Corinthians 3.18 teaches that you are changed into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory. What does that mean? It means that progressive sanctification is a process. It's not immediate. And we just That's what I was just highlighting with that last question. It's a process. Rather, you will be continually progressing in your Christ-likeness from the moment of your salvation until the moment you are with Christ in heaven. So according to Philippians 1.6, when will God finish the work that he is doing in you? It says, until the day of Christ Jesus. And there, that note explains that that's the rapture. So the day of Christ Jesus. The fact that God is continuing his work in you should lead you to several conclusions. One, Lack of progress is regression. You are responsible to continue growing more like Christ, Christ, regardless of how long you have been a Christian. There's no room for stagnancy. The status quo is unacceptable. You must continually progress towards Christ-likeness. So if you read, the, he, the book of Hebrews highlights this. You can't 
You can't be infants. The, the Christian life doesn't allow for you to just stay in, in some kind of infant Christian life. There's something wrong with you spiritually if you aren't growing. It's not, it's not the norm. Don't expect, number two, don't expect immediate sanctification, especially from others. The tendency of many Christians is to expect progressive sanctification from themselves, but immediate sanctification from everyone else. Right? I think we all, we all realize that. However, it is interesting to note that the sin, sins that frustrate us most in the lives of others are often the very sins that we excuse in our own lives. You must exhibit patience and grace toward others, allowing the Lord to have time to work in their lives. So that's a, that's the hard that's a hard one. Failure number three. Failure needs to not be final. So if we read the book of Philemon, the Apostle Paul accounts uh, Paul's account of a life of a man called Onesimus. Notice the change that the gospel brought to his life. Verse eleven contains a tremendous message of hope. One who has been useless can be made useful by, by God's grace. How should the testimony of Onesimus affect your relationship with others, particularly those in sin? So what it does is it gives us confidence. We can have confidence that God will accomplish his goals in us. Even in those times we fail, God will accomplish his goal. We can still be made useful by God, for God, even at those times that we fail, after those times we fail. Complete sanctification, number four, will not be accomplished in this life. So some teachers claim that it is possible to stop sinning, to live above sin. However, in in the words of a wise old saint, the only way to live above sin (laughs) is to rent a room over a pool. (laughs) Although you are commanded to strive for holiness, don't be so arrogant as to claim to have achieved it. What do 1 John 1, 8, and 10 say about someone who claims to be above sin? John tells his readers that you are deceiving yourself if you claim to be without sin or above sin. Not only that, in verse 10 he tells us we make God to be a liar. So there's the really indictment. If we say that we're living without sin or that we're sinless, we're making God to be a liar. So 1 John 3, 2 when will we finally be like Christ in our character and conduct? When Christ appears. So, thinking about sanctification, uh, the how, uh, you know, really think about those spiritual disciplines. Prayer, scripture, training versus trying. You know, this idea, Think when you're thinking about the disciplines, and, and how our Christian life goes, it's not a matter of uh, just trying harder, trying harder. It's actual, it's an issue of training. We need to train our minds. The renewing of your mind is, is how this, this goes. It's not just a matter of trying harder. Training versus trying. These difficult circumstances, we can look at Romans 8, 28 through 29, which it highlights there. And we know that all, in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose for those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many among excuse me among many brothers and sisters so 
God, those difficult circumstances, God is in control. He's brought them into our life for a reason. Personal relationships. You know, we can, if we, living life in community. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 is a good one to think about as we think about personal relationships and how they can help us with our sanctification. Any, any questions on any of this material? Any, any comments? All right. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Now. <clears throat> our Heavenly Father, we, we just thank you for your promises and your word that we can have absolute confidence and faith in you to accomplish those things that you uh, have started in us. We thank you that, Lord, we, uh, we can be reassured that it's not a matter of us just trying harder because of uh, we know, if we're honest, the way we fail you on a daily basis. So, Lord, we just pray that you would help us to give us grace that we may uh, cling to your word, that we would seek you out in prayer, that we would just look at the different circumstances we're in and, and try to give you glory and, and see why you're bringing and allowing these things in, and that we might live out our lives with each other, encouraging one another, helping each other to grow more and more like Christ to your glory. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name.